Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. Today we're going we're gonna to begin a brand new series in the book of Colossians. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn with me there. Colossians. But as you're turning, go ahead, or in your digital Bibles, go ahead, uh, and instead of going to the beginning, instead of Colossians 1.1, I want you you to go to Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. So we're going to start strategically in the middle of the book, if you will. And as soon as you get there, we're going to read that passage, and uh, we're going to get right in to this amazing letter that Paul writes. Colossians chapter 2, starting at verse 8. These are the words of God. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Let me read that one more time to you. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy or empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. So the reason, um, the reason that we're starting here and not in chapter 1, verse 1, is that understanding Paul's motive or understanding Paul's purpose is actually uh, a vital component. It's absolutely vital to rightly dividing uh, this letter, okay? And that's, that's a Christianese phrase. I know some of, most of you should know it, but to rightly divide the word of truth simply means that we are going to rightly interpret it. We're going to rightly understand it. We're going to look to what the definition of the terms mean. We're going to look to the context. We're going to look to all of the really important pieces of the letter. We're going to look, as Psalm 119 would say, we're going to look at the whole of Scripture, and we're going to interpret what God is actually saying. So it's really important that we, that we look to the context, we look to the purpose statement for this letter to rightly divide it. As a principle, uh, understanding a situation accurately is essential to a correct application. And I'm going to say this slightly different this way. I'm going to say it flipped around uh, so that maybe it sticks with you. Accurate application must follow accurate information. Accurate application must follow accurate information. This is the exact reason why men don't build furniture well. Because they don't read accurate information, they wing it, okay? So winging it is not how we do it with the Bible. That's what most people seem to try to do. But we don't apply things well when we don't look at the directions. We also don't show up at our destination. Can I get an amen? Anybody there? Now, you have a GPS on your phone, so you have no excuse. I don't know why you're not following directions anymore. We live in the 21st century. But, so accurate application has to follow accurate information. Say that you and I are having a conversation, and in that conversation, I uh, don't give you or you don't catch a piece of pertinent information. I think every one of us would agree that jumping to conclusions in that situation or making uninformed assumptions would be very bad, right? We would all look at that as a bad thing. Instead, what we would do is we would want to seek clarification. Sadly, we don't often do this with the Scripture. We just 
take whatever our quick reading of the scripture is, whatever our personal interpretation is, whatever the church told us or whatever some pastor told us for eons of time, and we just take that. And that's how we walk forward. But we are supposed to be good Bereans, if you will. We are supposed to be good students of God's word. And so we need to seek clarification, especially in God's word. This is why the scripture tells us that we need to be slow to speak and quick to listen. You can be listening as you read God's word. Why? Because it's God who's speaking. I say this all the time. It's a fun statement. I wish I would have invented it or created it. But, but if you want to hear God's voice, you should read God's word. If you want to hear it audibly, read it out loud. Okay? You, you need to read God's word. You need to put your trust in that. And you need to be slow to speak, slow to come to conclusions. And you need to be quick quick to listen to what God has to say. This is also why I stress over and over uh, this phrase that uh, we may have the same vocabulary, but we've got to make sure we have the same dictionary. How many of you know the world believes they're loving people? How many of you know this? The world believes they're loving people, but not according to 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. Love keeps no record of wrong. Love does not celebrate in unrighteousness. The world goes, that's not our definition of love, but we're going to use the same vocabulary. We're going to use the same word. We've got to be careful with this. All of this is part and parcel to rightly dividing God's word. All of these, all of these principles will apply throughout this series through the book of Colossians. In order to arrive at an accurate, accurate application of Colossians, we are going to have to dive in or seek accurate information. All too often as Christians, we make a mess of God's word because we don't take the time to understand what's really going on. Instead of growing and learning as God intended, we take a path of least resistance, don't we? How much time do we spend reading our Bible? We give it that five-second devotional that comes through our phone. We don't meditate on it day and night. In our comings, in our goings, talking about God's word. Always having our conversation seasoned with salt. We don't do it. We look for the path of least resistance. It's just common for us. Guess what, guys? Studying God's word, being devoted to him, reading his word, trusting him, loving him. Guess what it is? It's a sacrifice. What is a sacrifice? Barney talked about it this morning. Man, if you got time, if you can make it at 9.30 in the morning, you should be here. The things that Barney is, uh, is bringing out of the Psalms and the things that he's teaching are just awesome. If you can't make it because it's crazy in your schedule or you've got 14 kids, I already do, so you have no excuse. Anyway, uh, but if you, if, you, <laughs> if you can't, yeah, if you have less than four kids, I don't want to hear it. Anyway, no, anyway, so what I'm saying is Barney is doing that. If you can't make it, he's po- we're posting this to the blog every week. We're posting this to the church website because there's really good insights. But he talks about sacrifice. He talked about sacrifice this morning. And sacrifice, what's amazing about sacrifice was it was given, the, the act of sacrifice was given to the covenant people of God, which means something. It means they already had a relationship with God. And that covenant of sacrifice given to a covenant people was intended to draw them nearer to him. 
When you study the Word of God, when you devote yourself to the Word of God, it is a sacrifice. It is drawing near to God. King David said something very important about sacrifice. He said, I refuse to offer God something that costs me nothing. And the church today looks for a way to sacrifice that which costs them the least possible. It's dangerous, church. It's dangerous. Why? Because you're going to walk away from your salvation. No, no, I don't necessarily believe that it's directly connected to that. But I do believe it's connected to you not walking in the freedom and the call of God in your life. He's given you his word. All scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is useful for, preach, for teaching and for correcting and for training in righteousness. It is useful for preaching. Most pastors should use more of it. <laughs> but it is really important that we understand what, what we're doing when we study. We have got to give God our heart. So sadly, we take this path of least resistance and we get distracted from all the real issues because we don't take the time to read it. We may even spend years of our life inside the church missing the point with respect to significant matters. I'm going to ask for a show of hands. How many of you over the past, let's just say over the past couple of years, spending your time here at this church, spending your time in God's word, how many of you have realized that there are things that you believed when you were younger that just have no foundation? How many of you believe that? Yeah, it's amazing. But, but many people are too stubborn to realize they might not have it all right. We've got to let this inform us. And when we see the words on the page, fun thing is there's no wiggling out of it. God said it. We believe it. Amen? God said it. We believe it. That's what we're supposed to be, supposed to do. A friend of mine on Facebook uh, this week, she posted a question uh, to all of her Facebook friends. And she asked, what was more important, church tradition or the Word of God? What's more important, church tradition or the Word of God? Now, questions like this make me jump for joy. Because I could spend hours and hours and hours inside of questions like this. I can't because Barney keeps telling me I have work to do. Anyway, so <laughs> yay for Barney. Anyway, no. So I could spend hours and hours, but I did answer. I did offer a, just a quick answer. And I said, although this is a great question, you're never going to find a person who's going to answer church tradition. You know why? Because nobody believes they're slaves to their tradition. They all believe a lot of good things about themselves. Every comment, by the way, in the thread was the word of God, the word of God, the word of God. Not one person said, oh, I love to trust tradition more than anything. Because that's the way it works with us, okay? We, we have biases, and we believe that we're doing things nobly. All of us have these biases, and we literally believe we're doing everything purely. But we don't. So I sent a message to her, and I also said, I said, this is just like asking people if they go to a Bible-believing church. Ask, ask somebody today that goes to another church, do you go to a Bible-believing church? As a matter of fact, ask a Jehovah's Witness if you can find one. Ask a Mormon if they go to a Bible-believing church. They're going to say, yes, they go to a Bible-believing church. That doesn't mean they do. Amen? 
It doesn't mean they do. And so I said, this is just like everybody saying that they go to a Bible-believing church. You're never going to hear somebody say the negative about themselves. Most individuals believe that the Word of God is what governs them. The humbling reality in our lives is that each of us has problems with human tradition being more important than the Word of God. And I highlight that word, human tradition. Why? Because God does not hate tradition, church. God does not hate tradition. He just doesn't like your tradition. (laughs) God doesn't hate philosophy. He just hates your philosophy. God doesn't hate principles and commands and all of these things. He doesn't. He just hates man-made ones. Amen? And we're going to see this in the book of Colossians. We're going to see this as the core and central issue to what Paul is addressing, what most scholars would refer to as the Colossian heresy. This is why the scripture tells us that we are to study to show thyself approved. It's also why the scripture tells us that we are to rightly divide the word of truth. Please spend your time this week studying those two verses. Uh, Please spend your time understanding what it means to rightly divide the word of truth or to study to show thyself approved. Now, just a bit of a geeky statement here, uh, a geeky moment here. It is freeing if you'll listen to what I'm about to say. But the scripture says study to show thyself approved. The scripture does not say study to prove thyself. And there is a massive difference in that. Why is there a massive difference in that? Because if you are approved of God, that is by grace through faith, if you are approved of God, you will be one who searches his heart. You will be one who makes pleasing sacrifices to God. Why? Because you love him. It is out of a right relationship that all application flows. That all behavior flows. This is why Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, in view of what, church? Mercy, present your body as a living sacrifice. Again, Barney brought out sacrifice this morning. Just an amazingly powerful teaching that, that shows us what the sacrificial system was really all about. Here's what's really amazing for you to keep in mind. Paul tells Christians... In Romans 12, 1 and 2, in view of mercy, to present a sacrifice. But what is that sacrifice? Your life, holy and pleasing to God. Here's what's so amazing. You ever wonder why the sacrifices of the Old Testament could not make people holy? Because the scripture tells us it did not make people holy. It could not wash away sins. Why was that the case? Because God had made them holy by his declaration that they were his people. They were set apart by calling. Okay? Do you understand what I'm saying? They were set apart from everybody else in the world because God called them Israel. We are set apart because of the blood of Jesus, which calls us his children, his brothers and sisters. Amen? And so here's what's amazing. They would do sacrifices in order to draw them close to God. We present our bodies as a living sacrifice to draw close to God. In the Old Testament, if you were a pagan and you offered a sacrifice, you know why, you'd, if, even if it was your own life, you know why that's not a good enough sacrifice? Because you're a blemished lamb. You're a blemished lamb, and guess what God says? He does not take blemished lambs. He is not pleased with an an imperfect sacrifice. But listen, before you panic and say, wow, I'm a dirtbag, I guess God doesn't love me. 
Well, I'll amen that at first, but then I want to take you to the next step, which is called Jesus. And here's what Jesus does through his blood on the cross. He sheds his blood over you, making you what? Pure and spotless, white as snow. And then guess what happens? Every bit of your life is pleasing to God when you sacrifice it to him every day. Present your offering. Present your body as a living and pleasing sacrifice to God. Why? Because what does Romans 12, 2 say? This is your spiritual act of worship. It's you drawing near to God. People have missed this connection most of my life. They've missed this connection. We're not seeing what Jesus is doing. Jesus, through the gospel, through his blood, has made us pure, and now we're pleasing. Isn't that powerful? Isn't that powerful? It's really, really important that we connect all these beautiful dots because that's what God is doing. So when we read something like the book of Colossians, but don't know the core issues, okay, we're getting back to this core issue issue. If we don't know the core issue, we will likely apply instruction, any instruction that's given, in a way that was never intended. Some people apply instruction in the Bible as a way to earn or a way to keep God's love. It's just not what the scripture teaches. So I want to clarify that a little bit today. A bit of a side note, I'm going to spend some time here just for a second because this is something that I'm going to get on a soapbox. That's all there is to it. That was not a soapbox. <laughs> that was just the gospel. Okay, so here's, here's the soapbox. There are many people in the church today that say the gospel of Jesus is a simple message, and here's how simple it is, that even a child can accept it. Isn't that true? Yes. But they never stop there. They always take it further. They always imply or they expressly state the gospel is simple, so simple that a child could accept it. So all of this discussion, all of this scholarly talk, all of this theological stuff, all of it is a waste of time. We need to get back to the simple gospel. I love hearing people say this. We need to get back to the simple gospel. Well, at first, I would say right off the bat, of course, we, we should always retain the simplicity of the gospel. Is the gospel simple? Yes. Is the gospel easy? No. It is simple to understand a message that says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's not easy to accept that truth, but it's simple to hear it. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin are death. That's a fun one. Gets closer and closer once you hit 40. So anyway, so the wages of sin are death, okay? But the gift of God is what? Eternal life in what? Christ Jesus, not in you. woo Okay, it's eternal life in Christ Jesus. And how are we in Jesus? The scripture says that the gospel is preached. And by hearing, faith comes, right? Because we have something to believe in. And so we believe and we repent and we are born again. Isn't that an amazing truth? Okay, that's the gospel in its most simple form. We should always retain that gospel. But here's the criticisms of this idea of let's just stick with the simple gospel. The problem is it negates everything the Apostle Paul did throughout the New Testament. The Apostle Paul writes the book of the Colossians, the, the letter to the Colossians, to debate the deeper issues. You realize how short Colossians would be if Paul accepted this nonsense idea of let's just keep the simple and throw away the complex? 
It would have been like, hey, guys, I know you're Christians. Good job. See you later. That would have been it. I could teach that series in, in only four weeks instead of four, four months. So <laughs> I could spread it out, though. Some of you are getting my jokes today. It's good. I love it. Here's, here's the other problem. So it contradicts all that Paul did. Paul is talking about the finer points. The other thing that it does is it negates what God told us to do, which is to grow to maturity. The scripture says, leave the things of childhood behind and move on or press on to maturity. We're supposed to be growing up, amen? Can, no, I need a better amen than that because you don't believe it until you're amen in it real. We need to grow to maturity. How many of you have ever watched The Princess Bride? No, 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 no. If your hand doesn't go up, you are out of this church. Okay? This is better than Lord of the Rings. Serious. Right? Classic. Right, Mark? Amen. Okay, so anyway. Okay, you've seen Lord of the Rings. How many of you believe that the, the story of Lord, uh, Lord of the Rings, Princess Bride, how many of you believe that the story of the Princess Bride would be easy for kids to understand? Every one of us. Why? Because it's the most basic story we've heard all of our life. Boy meets girl, conflict, resolution. They live happily ever after. This seems boring when you just state it in those basic forms. But listen, stories have been written in this structure for eternity. (laughs) And we love them. We love them. They're amazing stories. Our kids can grasp that story. My daughter's Seven and under, they love Princess Bride. We also have to skip past that one bad word in the movie. But it's really a good movie, and they get it. Now, let me ask you another question. How many of you, as adults, absolutely love the humor of Princess Bride? You love the humor of Princess Bride. And guess what? You love that humor, and you understand that humor. Why? Because you're old enough to understand that humor. Life has affected you. You get sarcasm. Why is it that people today don't get sarcasm? I don't really get it. But anyway, you get sarcasm. You love it. One of my favorite pieces of humor in this whole movie is the fight scene between uh, Wesley and Indigo, right? And they're up on the Cliffs of Insanity right off the bat. That's just amazingly funny. So they're up on Cliffs of Insanity. And you know what they do as they fight? You, You know this? They talk out their strategy. Like, that's what you would do in a fight. Oh, I see you're using this tactic. Yes, I thought it fitting, you know, considering the terrain. We all love this. We're, we're amused by this. Our kids don't get it. Now, I am going to share with you a, just a simple principle, and that is this. that If your kids are laughing with you at this movie, it's simply because they love to mimic you. My daughters laugh at stuff I know they don't get. Like, not even close. They can't get it, right? And they're laughing at it. But here's the warning that I have for you. You laughing at things that are inappropriate or stupid or dumb or vulgar or whatever, crass, you laughing at that, it's training ground. You're teaching them to laugh at the stupidest stuff. You're teaching them what they do. Make no mistake. You're always teaching your kids something. And that's, that's not to your praise most of the time, is it? Sometimes you go, shouldn't do that. You know, there are words that I still struggle with saying. I'll I'll be the the really great high Christian here and say, they're not the official cuss words, but there's words like crap or something like this that I struggle with, okay? You want to know when it becomes evident that you need to work on that? When your seven-year-old says it. And all of a sudden you go, 
So that's what my mom keeps saying when she hears me say that. <laughs> that's what she's hearing. She's hearing her seven-year-old say it. So I just want you to, I, I want you to understand your, your words, your laughter is a training ground. So is how you react to everything. If you, if you, if you do nothing but play video games, what do you think your kids are going to do? If you do nothing but ignore the people in your house, what do you think your kids are going to do? If you do nothing but look at your phone, what do you think eventually your kids are going to do? That's just the way it works. It's a training ground, okay? So the Princess Bride, complex humor, right? Complex humor. How many of you would love that movie if all the humor was removed and you just got this story? You just got this story. Boy meets girl, a little bit of conflict, resolution. Everybody's happily ever after. It gets boring, doesn't it? Your maturity makes you enjoy that movie all the more. Your maturity, my problem with everybody saying we need the simple gospel and forget all this scholarship, is that the deeper you go into this understanding what God has done and the nuances of his word, it makes you enjoy him all the more. It makes you see him for who he is, bigger than what you imagined at first. Bigger than what you saw at first. So I hope that you will, you will uh, take me serious when I say we need to study to show thyself approved. We need to rightly divide the word of truth. We need to hunger and thirst for his word on a regular basis. And this is a sacrifice. It is pleasing to him. And it's going to cost us something, church. It should cost you something. Okay? So let's give you a couple of examples of... Uh, uh, of right information leading to right application or maybe wrong information leading to wrong application. In chapters 3 and 4 of Colossians, we see something that is very common to Paul's writing. Scholars know this as, or have identified this, as the household codes. Some scholars refer to them as virtue and vice lists, but there's challenge with that wording, okay? So, so they call them the household codes. It governs ideas of how, say, a husband and a wife should treat each other, or how parents and children should get along. Or uh, in their particular context, it speaks to how masters and slaves conduct themselves because uh, slaves were a part of the household in this particular time. But here's where understanding the point of the letter or the issue being addressed will matter considerably. So here's the point. If you write nothing else down, if you remember nothing else from what I say today, please write this down because it's going to find itself in this series for the next two months. We will spend September and October picking this book apart, and you're going to need to remember this idea. And that is that Paul is writing to combat, Paul is writing to combat man-made philosophies, and traditions, man-made philosophies and traditions that are setting themselves up, that are setting themselves up against God's way. And what you're going to find as we go through this is that that's going to be God's philosophies, God's traditions, God's principles, because he has all of them. Okay? Okay? So the problem that Paul is dealing with is that Paul is writing to combat man-made philosophies and traditions that are setting themselves up against God's. And all of God's ways, mind you, are evident in Jesus Christ. And we'll see that throughout uh, the coming weeks. Misunderstanding the reason behind Paul's letter actually reduces these household codes to behaviors and practices that people should either blindly obey because Paul was talking really awesome theological stuff and then all of a sudden had an inspired rabbit trail and went off on behavior. He didn't do that. 
Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. Everything he's saying has a connection to the other points that he is making. He's not like a modern-day preacher. He's not going on a rabbit trail. Or they are interpreted as a means by which we gain or we keep God's mercy. If you don't act this way, God doesn't love you anymore, and that's the way it works. Well, what did I tell you about Romans 12, 1 and 2? What did I tell you about studying to show thyself approved? It doesn't say study to prove thyself, and it doesn't say in view of your sacrifice, God will show you mercy. It's the exact opposite of that. So when we look at things like the household codes that say, husbands, you are to treat your wife this way, it is a point of identification for one who is born again. If you are who you claim to be, this is how you'll look. In every way. This is how you'll look. Husbands, you'll treat your wives this way. Wives, you'll treat your husbands this way. Fathers, you won't cause your children to hate you. At least not all the time. You will discipline them. You will take care of them. You will do what your responsibility and your role is. Children, you will not disrespect and disobey your parents. You will honor them if you are a professed believer in Jesus. So these household codes, actually without that understanding that Paul is writing to combat man-made philosophies and traditions, we look at it and we say, oh great, a bunch of, bunch of behaviors. No, these are God-made principles. That's why they're so important. They're not our inventions. They're not things that we just get to come up with. This is really vital. Another example would be to read chapter 1 of Colossians, verses 13 through 23, where Paul establishes what is often called high Christology. In other words, a high understanding of Jesus. And conclude, if we read that, without the understanding of what the problem was in Colossians, we conclude that Paul is just waxing eloquent. He's just rambling on about something special. He wants to sound like a professional Christian who talks about Jesus in a big way. That's absolutely not the case. That's not the heart of the letter. That's not why Paul has put this in there. But when we understand the heart of the letter, what Paul says about Jesus and what he has done, in fact, answers the core issue in Colossae. Who Jesus is and what Jesus said and what Jesus does absolutely takes our mind off of man-made nonsense. And it puts us on the only one who speaks with any authority, the Son of the living God. We have to connect the dots, church, because if we don't, we miss the point. So this is one of the key reasons why uh, taking Bible verses out of context is such a problem. Listen to me, church. Listen to me. If you've fallen asleep on me, wake up for this one. This is really important. Verses in the Bible may have what appears to be a standalone meaning. They may have what appears to be a standalone meaning. But what they definitely have is a contextual meaning. Your standalone meaning might turn out to be nonsense. But there is a contextual meaning. And you need to fight for it. You need to understand what it says and why it says it. The reason for Paul's letter provides the only right filter through which we can read the rest of the book. It's the only way we're allowed to see it. Why? Because God is not clueless. God had an intention. Have you ever ever written an email with no purpose? Yeah, you saved it in your draft until you figured out what in the world you were trying to say. 
And then once you found out what you we were trying to say, hopefully you edited it before you sounded crazy, and then you sent it. Paul is under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. There's no way this goes without any intentional me- meaning. Paul has expressly written in the meaning for what's going on in this. And when we find that meaning that Paul wants to combat, man-made philosophy that is setting itself up against God's philosophies and God's truth, uh, we understand now how to filter or how to read the rest of the book. So let's look at the issue that's going on in Colossians. Colossians chapter 2, starting at verse 8. And I'm just going to hit on these key points, and we'll, and we'll walk through this quickly because i got plenty of time in the, next, uh, in the next couple of months to work through every detail in this. So here's what he says. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. First line, see that no one takes you captive. See that no one takes you captive. Who's Paul writing to? He's writing to Christians. Every letter is written to Christians. He's writing to the church in Colossae, and he says to born-again believers, he says, be careful, see to it that no one takes you captive. Now, it would be wrong for us to read that, uh, replacing the words on the page with words about salvation. He says, be sure not to allow them to take you captive. He does not say, be sure that they don't take your salvation. Why do we know that that's not possible from, for someone else, an outside party, to take this? Because nothing can separate you from the love of God. God doesn't say through Paul, nothing can separate you from the love of God, and then contradict him himself and say, except for those who try to take you captive. That doesn't make any sense. These people are leading people into bondage and into slavery. Now, what I will say about bondage and I will say about slavery is that bondage is not benign. Bondage can be malignant because if you stay in bondage, your eyes go off Jesus after a while. Your trust wanes and that is where danger comes. That is where you run all kinds of risks in your eternal security, as we might say. Scripture does not, does not make exception for that. We've got to keep that in because it is a serious, serious matter. I'll prove it to you with a couple of other passages. Hebrews 3, verses 12 through 14. Take care, brethren. The writer of Hebrews writes to his audience and says that there may, there may not be any one of you with an evil or unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. What's the problem in this person's, uh, in this person's life for falling away? It's not deceiving teachers. It's their unbelieving heart. Okay? Now look at what he goes on to say. This is powerful. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And he goes on. Listen to me clearly. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Nathan, you just said, I don't study to prove myself. That sounds like if this, then this. But it's the same if this, then this that the Bible has always communicated. You trust Jesus. That's all. You are saved by grace through faith. You trust him. 
It's my opinion that we can look at Jesus after these kinds of infiltrations and frustrations in life and the deceitfulness of sin and other people, and we can say, I no longer trust Jesus. The Bible talks about one day a great apostasy. There are pastors today who believe that that great apostasy is happening now. An apostasy means a turning away. A turning away. You have to be facing something to turn away from it. Right? But this is a dangerous situation. What is the solution? Just trust Jesus. This is the premise of Colossians. Just trust Jesus. Stop trusting man's philosophy. Stop trusting your own opinions. Just trust Jesus. This is important. Paul says a similar thing to his son in the faith, Timothy. Oh, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Avoiding worldly and empty chatter. Make, make no mistake, it's worldly and empty chatter that is the problem. And the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed, listen, listen church, hear it clearly, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. Be careful, Timothy. Be careful, Timothy. Your trust needs to land in Jesus. So the first thing that we have to see is to warn, is to be careful against this captive thought because that's exactly what Paul is warning against. This is the premise of the book. If you don't see that, you're going to miss every other piece in the book. What does he say can be deceptive or can hold us captive? Philosophy, empty deception, but read the qualifier. According to the tradition of men. That's the problem. God doesn't have a problem with philosophy. Why do I know that? Philosophy just means how we know things. Do you know what the book of Proverbs was written for? For you to grow in wisdom and knowledge. Both. God can't say, I don't really care about knowledge. I don't want philosophy. I just want you to wing it. No. That's not it. He wants us to mature. He wants us to grow. What is that doing? It's training us in how we think. All of the things, though, philosophy, empty deception, or elementary principles of the world that are in accordance with the traditions of men are the problem. Please write it down. Note that. That's the problem. And look at what the next, verse, or the next part of that verse says. It says, rather than according to Christ. And the antecedent, what it's drawing back to, is philosophy, traditions, and principles that are according to Christ. How can I prove that? Because chapter 3 and chapter 4 contain the household codes, which are all principles to live by. God doesn't just say, woo, you're free. Wing it. We're good. No, he doesn't say that. He calls us to a life in him. Okay, go on to verse 9. For in him, that's Christ Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete. You've been made complete. That's powerful. How are we made complete? In Jesus. In Jesus, not in ourselves. And he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Hear me. The Old Testament talks about uh, an everlasting covenant of circumcision. How many of you know that? It was made with Abraham. And then, somehow, Jesus comes in the New Testament and says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And people say, okay, so circumcision doesn't matter. Ah, fleshly circumcision is what doesn't matter. 
Circumcision, the covenant, is enduring forever. It's enduring forever. Why? It's a circumcision not made with human hands. It's a circumcision of the removal of the body. What body is it talking about here? The body of sin. What did Jesus do? He made you right in front of his, in front of his father. He made you right before God. I'll prove it in just a second. But the removal of the body of the flesh. Flesh is always paralleled with sin in the scriptures. And so this flesh has been removed. Why? Because Jesus bought us at a price. Circumcision is an everlasting covenant, even for us. It just happens to be spiritual. And guess what? The scripture talks about things that were a shadow that were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The fleshly form was a shadow fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This is called typology in the scripture. Yet again, another powerful lesson of study if we will give ourselves to it. So let's, let's draw it to a close with this. Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 through 14. And in him you were also circumcised with a, with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God. All of this language is written in the aorist tense. In the Greek, it's amazing. It's like the Old Testament's prophetic perfect. And that is, it's talking that it has happened. It is done. It is over. Now, the reason why that might be true for them and not true for somebody who hasn't put their faith in Jesus yet is because this was written to a people 2,000 years ago. Right? They're long dead. <laughs> but it was true of them at the time. You have been buried with him. Okay, Verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. How many of our transgressions were forgiven, church? Come on, you got to hear the gospel. How many of your transgressions were forgiven? All of them. Not that stuff that you still can't. Get rid of. Not that stuff that you keep thinking, I don't think God would ever forgive me of that. All your transgressions. Keep going with me. All of your transgressions. Verse uh, 14. Having canceled out uh, the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he, was taken, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When did the cross happen, church? 2,000 years ago, when was this nailed to the cross? 2,000 years ago, Colossians 2.15, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. While the Romans believed they were hanging the king of the Jews on the cross, Jesus dying on the cross was hanging the Romans' nonsense on the same cross. Hanging the Jewish nonsense on the same cross. He was making a mockery of the thing that they were doing to him. He put them on public display. Verse 16. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge with regard to food or drink. Or in respect to festivals or new moon or Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels. And we're going to get in depth about this nonsense. Because all of these things are 
present in the modern American church as well. And it's dangerous. And by the way, same as Colossae, they're masquerading as forms of Jesus followers. And we got to be careful. Listen to me. Self-abasement, the worship of angels, taking his stands on visions that he's seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by its joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. How do we grow? Attachment to the head. We are the body. He is the head. Attachment to that head, we grow. That's how this works. Verse 20. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? Look at what he says. Which all refer to things destined to perish with use. Why? Because their fulfillment, anything that was of Jewish origin, found its fulfillment in Jesus. Anything that was of pagan origin was man-made nonsense to begin with. In accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. Verse 23. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom. You want to know why it's, it's a great deception that comes? Because we're going to look at them and say, wow, that seems wise. That seems wise. And you're going to pride yourself in the fact that you're wise enough to see the wisdom in it. And it's junk. That's my modification of the word there. Junk. So it says, uh, the teachings of men, these are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Roll over into chapter 3 and we'll end this way. That fleshly indulgence is so important. So important for us to remember this. Why is it that strict behaviors against your body don't make, don't provide you with power against self-indulgence? Jesus told us the answer. He said, because what comes into a man is not what makes him unclean. It's what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. How many of you know that? What comes out of a man. This is really important for you to get. If your heart has not been changed, you can't do what Jesus said. doesn't matter how hard you try. You'll love in a way that seems wise. You'll love in a way that seems good, seems attractive to people. But unless you have been born again, you cannot be pleasing to him. Because you're not a pure sacrifice. This is really important, church. So why are these things of no value against fleshly indulgence? Because your heart has to be changed. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things where? Above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Have you died? He says you have. Is your life hidden with Christ? He says it is. Verse 4, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Here's the conclusion for today. Paul is combating man-made philosophies and traditions and principles which serve to put you in bondage. God says, not only is Jesus the head of all things, not only in connection to him do we grow and do we live and move and have our being, in connection with him, we actually know what is right. Not what appears wise, but what actually is wise. The church today rails against the commands in the scripture. 
The church today looks at the scripture, looks at the things that God says, and says, that seems oppressive. Have you read those household codes, Nathan? Have you read that they say, wives, you should submit to your husbands? What a load of nonsense. I know you're thinking it, whether you want to agree with me or not. But do you know why those things were written? Those things were not written because God wanted to go on some strange power trip and make you obey dumb stuff. Those things are not of this earth. Those things are not of this earth. Husbands, lay down your life for your wife. You know why you should do that? Because the world doesn't do it. When the going gets tough, he's on the couch. When the going gets tough, she's out the house. That's not what God does. It's not what God does. Why do we have principles in the scripture? Because Christ is glorified. Why do we have principles in the scripture? Because all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. Why do we have principles in scripture? Because Jesus said, teach them to obey all that I command. Why do we have principles? Because they are things above, not things below. See, when you're fighting against the things of God's word, and I'm talking to Christians. I'm not talking to you as though you don't know Jesus. I know that you know Jesus, okay? Here's what I'm getting at. In your knowledge of Jesus, the reason why you're tempted to not do what he says, the reason why you don't want to believe what he says about any of the big issues of our day, and even the small ones, is because human philosophy appears wise. It seems reasonable. It seems right. It's, it's pretty good, right? I think I'm doing it. This is pseudo-religion. And you're being held captive. And as I said before, captivity is not benign. Captivity can lead you to the point where it becomes malignant and you no longer put your faith in Jesus. You say, I don't, I don't trust you. I don't trust you. I don't like anything that you're saying. Listen, I want, if you've never heard this from a pastor before, I do not preach the commands and the decrees. I do not get riled up about holiness and about behavior and all of those things because I'm on some weird kick where I just want you to feel miserable for a week. As a matter of fact, I'd love it if you walked away from here every day understanding that what I'm trying to do is to encourage you, put courage into you to walk like Jesus did. This is what Paul did in every letter. This is not what modern preachers do. Modern preachers tell you you're good enough, smart enough, and doggone it, Jesus already loves you. Don't worry about it. It's just sweet. It's just, that's fine. He loves you. And he also says, live like he lived. Follow after him. Why? Because in view of mercy, that's what his people do. I'm telling you commands, and I'm preaching all of these things, and I will never give up on holiness and righteousness and being pure as God is pure or perfect as he is perfect because this, for you to believe anything else is for you to be deceived, for you to be put in bondage, and that bondage is deceptive. That bondage is malignant. Church, I care too much for you, and you should care too much for your family to ever allow these things to happen. We should be in God's word every day and we should say because of who Jesus is and because of what he has done and because I am dead to sin, I will walk after him. Why? Because it is right and good and pure and holy. That's why. This is not man-made religion. I don't want you to beat yourself with a cord of whips and act like a better person than you are. I want you to die to yourself because God already bought you at a price. 
Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at piercepoint.org for more information.